Let's pray and uh, we'll crack on into uh, this passage that Sarah has read to us today. Loving God, we want to want to thank you for this opportunity to to gather uh, one church in many homes to be able to take the opportunity to sing, to worship, and even to pray. Uh, we pause and we slow down now as we come into your presence, and we just want to lift uh, our hearts and our minds and our lives before you. Lord, we want to lift our sister uh, Eva to you as well as she uh, faces the ongoing. Um, Symptoms and that of uh, COVID-19, we pray for your healing hand there and for uh, your intervention there and that she would recover well, that she would recover strong and that she'd be symptom-free uh, very soon. We think of lots and lots of people who are in this space uh, that are being affected by this virus and we pray for those that are supporting them, those that are impacted by it, that you would continue to bring um, strength and healing and mercy into those spaces. Lord, now as we turn to uh, this passage uh, in your word, I uh, pray that your spirit uh, would open our hearts, uh, help us approach your word with a way that allows it to, to transform, to change, to see us for who you are, um, that our hearts would uh, be transformed to be warmed for affection for God. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, every now and again, uh, you get to be in a church service that takes a bit of an unexpected turn and doesn't quite finish out the way uh, it was meant to, uh, finishes off for the worst. We nearly had it this morning when I forgot my mic. Uh, the very memorable little moments in church service. We always seem to remember the, 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 the tragedies and the chaos of a service more than just the good parts of a service. Uh, YouTube is full of church services that didn't quite go to plan, whether it's some kind of uh, natural disaster, whether it's a tech disaster, uh, whether it's a people disaster. Uh, there they all are online. Uh, I once uh, was in a church service that really took a turn for the worse. Sandy and I were visiting uh, some good friends of ours, and he was a pastor of a church there. And I was up the back with him, and he was just getting ready to preach and go down the front and talk. And all of a sudden, just this, this wave of uh, this sound, this wave of distress, if you like, began to sweep across the congregation till it finally bumped into uh, Bill and I. And we realized that an elderly member of the congregation had gone down, had, had fallen from her chair, uh, grasping at her, at her chest and that. And, and we thought, oh... No, this lady's having a heart attack. Uh, he looked at me and he said, oh, man, you know, what are we going to do? And we sort of went, oh, well, let's call an ambo. Uh, let's, let's clear some space. Uh, we'll, we'll usher some people off to pray. Uh, we'll usher some, we'll say, anyone who doesn't want to pray, just go and have uh, morning tea early. We'll just work out who the real spiritual ones in the church are, that kind of business. And, 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 and we'll do that. And he was like, oh, what about the sermon? You can't have a church service without a sermon. And I said, mate, I don't think, I think church is over. I don't think they're going to finish uh, the way we thought they might today. And that was that. And everybody got organized and, you know, cleared the space around the lady and some people were off over there praying. And then uh, the smart ones went and got into early morning tea and ate all the biscuits and cake before anyone else. And uh, it, it was just a chain, uh, church service that really derailed. It was quite a memorable day. Um, but everyone pulled through in, in the end, including the lady who, 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 who got ushered off in an ambulance, but she recovered well. She was just annoyed that she missed out on morning tea. 
You know, in our passage today, uh, we read about another church service uh, that was abandoned before it even had a chance uh, to finish, to close. However, this church service is not abandoned because of some uh, natural disaster, because of some tech issue or because of some medical emergency. This service was abandoned because of a widespread heart condition that existed within the people that were there. A condition that is so severe, so destructive, that when it encounters uh, the gospel of grace that is found in Jesus Christ, it just blows up with rage. Um, And in the end, uh, this reaction is quite fatal. It's a condition that we're all born with, and it's a condition that only grace uh, can overcome. Well, this this church service, this... this, uh, service it started well uh we read mainly last week but we we saw here this morning that as jesus the hometown boy was preaching away in his local synagogue um preaching a message that basically said uh that the promised day of the lord uh when he would heal, when he would restore his people, bring about a kingdom, bring about a, a kingdom of great reversal through uh, his servant, a uh, suffering servant of the Lord, that, that it was here, that it had arrived. And not just as a historical marker, but it had arrived personally. It had, had arrived in the person of Jesus. Jesus says, God has anointed me. Uh, to be his agent of restoration, uh, to bring about God's salvation to the poor, the blind, the imprisoned, and the oppressed. And Jesus uses these actual literal uh, conditions as great metaphors and applies them to the spiritual conditions of the hearts of the people that are there. It would have been quite a sermon rolling out of Isaiah 61 and and 58. But Luke gives us just nine words of that sermon uh, where he says, Today uh, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke will use the rest of the gospel to serve as a, a lived-out application of, of his message. Jesus will be the sermon. He uh, will be the healer, the restorer. And it will be the actual blind and the actual oppressed and, the, and imprisoned and those who, who, who are normally seen as on the outside, the marginalized, that will be the special focus of this ministry of Jesus uh, that, that he intends to bring spiritual uh, awakeness and, 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 and sight uh, to truth and, and healing and revelation and all that he will achieve. Well, Luke, as we read this morning, tells us that all are speaking well of Jesus and all are amazed at the gracious words of Jesus. But that is as far as it went. It was a case of, you know, can you believe what we're hearing uh, coming out of the mouth of Jesus? They knew Jesus. They'd watched him grow up. And isn't this Joseph's son? Now, now, listen to what he said. He's claiming that the Messiah's ministry to people in distress, uh, you know, to, to the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, is something that he is achieving. And more than that, is it possible that, that he is saying that, the, that these metaphors, as he's using these things metaphorically, that, that they apply to us, that he's actually talking to us? 
It's the kind of unease uh, that, that people get when they feel like the pastor's been kind of spying on their social channels and, and has written a sermon just pointed at them by some kind of special insight uh, that he has. However, as they respond, as they, as they begin to respond with a bit of skepticism um, to Jesus' claim, they're unmoved by the idea that here in this synagogue, today amongst these people are people who need salvation uh, from someone as familiar to them as Jesus. Well, Jesus hits their skepticism head on uh, and, and, that, and he says, uh, I know what you're all thinking and no doubt you, you will kind of take that thinking and, and, and ask you know for proof proof that I can do all that I claim uh, you probably quote this cultural parable to me uh, that basically asks you know traveling physicians uh, doctors to prove their claims before anybody's going to buy in and believe uh, what they're selling you know physician Heal yourself. Uh, it's basically, well, put your money where your mouth is. They want proof of his claims to bring liberty and sight and release and freedom. You talk a good game. Uh, you're an impressive orator. You're obviously a gifted teacher. You, you're potentially a prophet. We'll give you that, uh, son of Joseph. But a Messiah, a son of God, that's a bridge too far. That's a whole suburb uh, too far. And, and this good, middle-class, morally okay uh, churchgoers ask that Jesus go and do the very same thing that the devil asked Jesus to do back out in the desert. And that's to use his divinity to promote his own case. They want a sign uh, that they can claim that's theirs. Uh, perhaps something unique to Nazareth, you know. And then, you know, when people say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They can say, yeah, check this out. Oh, for sure, Jesus, he has done miracles for others down there in Capernaum. Uh, we've heard what you did down there in Capernaum, in Capernaum. Now do here in your hometown. It's another saying, another way of saying, uh, until we see with our own eyes, uh, how you will bring salvation to us, you know, uh, we're going to remain unmoved, okay? We're quite fine where we are. You know, in all reality, they have all the empirical evidence they need. They have heard, they just choose not to believe at this point in time. But they want Jesus to meet them on their terms. Uh, they are not moved merely by his message, and they are not moved by his claims to to be the one who, who is bringing salvation and bringing liberty. This is the problem that the skeptical heart faces. Jesus does not give in to demands. He's not about meeting people on their terms, their conditions. He insists, he insists that we receive him on his terms, or not at all. You can say, unless I have, unless I see what others see and have what others have, I will not be moved. I will not be changed. And Jesus says, well, actually, unless you move, unless you change the approach of your heart, you will not know, you will not see, you will not experience what others claim to know, see and experience. I mean, that's the whole conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. You, you think you know something about me? You know nothing about me unless you look at me through the renewed eyes that the Spirit gives us. 
Jesus will not perform uh, some marvelous miracle to please and convince the crowd. Rather, what he's going to do is he's going to uh, expose the condition of their hearts by likening and comparing them to a time in Israel's history that was, it was pretty much the lowest uh, and darkest uh, spiritual period of their history by singling out two events in the ministry of some of Israel's greatest prophets, Elijah there in 1 Kings 17 and Elisha uh, in uh, 2 Kings 5. And Jesus is now moving and he's warning his audience that their reaction, their, their response to his message resembles some of Israel's lowest years where people rejected uh, God's word, listening to God's prophet and, and, and hearing his word through that means. His audience has a choice of whether to accept Jesus as God's Messiah uh, bringing this kingdom or reject him. Rejection will mean that Jesus' blessing uh, and his ministry is just going to head somewhere else, uh, out of his hometown, uh, and go and find people willing, uh, prepared to receive and hear his gospel message. You know, we we don't ever read of of Jesus returning back to Nazareth after this, and it paints a, a pretty dire warning that rejection of the gospel can prove pretty fatal to the soul. Well, Jesus, uh, in this moment, uses examples attached to the ministry of these, these prophets to expose that receiving uh, salvation, receiving the kingdom of God has nothing to do with heritage, uh, religious affiliation, you know, denomination or morality. It can't be bought. It can't be earned. But everything, it has everything to do with the condition of your heart, your approach, its, cap- its capability to see its own poverty, uh, its own blindness, its captiveness and bondage uh, to its own self-sufficiency to try and save itself through its own power or in spite of its own power. The crowd are stirring as Jesus preaches. There's a murmur, but by the time he finishes, it will have turned to full-blown wrath. Thumos, you know, just a rising temperatures, uh, outraged minds, pride that expresses itself by, by saying it wants to stand on its own achievements, my goodness, or, or pride that points out all the adversities in life that it has. In verse 25, Jesus calls to attention this unsettled crowd with this strong phrase, but in truth. And it basically means listen very carefully while I explain things. And Jesus uses the widow from the time of Elijah there in 1 Kings 17, who lives, you know, east of the Jordan in Sidon. Uh, she's a Gentile, living in a Gentile lands, an idolatra. She's a woman, and she's a she, she's a woman uh, in grave poverty. You couldn't be more removed, more marginalized, if you like, from, from good, accepted religious piety and qualifications, uh, you know, to, to be one who God would bless. Uh, and yet, it is only her. Despite the fact that there are many poor, there are many widows in Israel, it is only her that God sends his prophet Elijah to. To, to, to use up her last morsel of resources to take care of the prophet. 
and she's out hunting for a few sticks. She doesn't even have a wood pile at her house uh, to get a fire going, to turn this tiny morsel of flour that she has and this little bit of oil she has in a jar into a cake, and her and her son are just going to eat this and die. And Elijah, who in the context of the story uh, speaks to her as God's prophet, as the, as the prophet of the God of Israel, and tells her uh, that if she trusts his words, uh, trust in him, then the God of Israel will see to it that she will not lack. She will not lack flour. She will not lack oil. And she and her son will live. And this won't be the only miracle that Elijah uh, does for this woman. And incredibly, she just does it. She doesn't ask for any extra credentials or proof. She literally places her life and the life of her son uh, into uh, his promise and his claims about what God can do uh, through him for them. She believed before she saw. She responded without any miraculous evidence. And Jesus is calling the people of Nazareth to be likewise. Jesus, by extension, is calling you and I to be likewise. Surely if someone with so little religious uh, uh, resources can respond appropriately to God, you can. And Jesus attacks their comfortable, you know, middle class, take it for granted Christianity. That it blinds them. It blinds them to their spiritual poverty and their need of his grace, which demands that they simply trust in his words with their very lives. This woman's great advantage is that in her, ab- her, her abject poverty uh, makes, her, makes her fatally desperate. Uh, she has nothing to lose. She's come to the end of her own sufficiency, small as it might be. And because of that, she is in a space to trust his word. Her poverty uh, provided the environment for her to receive uh, his promise of, of, of blessing, of, of salvation through faith. She instinctively, she literally knows she has nothing to contribute to this. She didn't need convincing that she needed external help, that she needed external saving. And Jesus is saying, when you realize you have nothing to contribute to your salvation, uh, the salvation that I offer, then then you are in the right space to receive it. Well, it's a huge insult to the, to the good sensibilities of these people. They have spent their lives contributing to uh, their qualifications to be saved. And now Jesus says that it means nothing, that salvation is something that, that uh, can be given to even someone as religiously odorous and, and, and immoral, idolatra, this single mum that lives on the wrong side, the outside of the Bible belt, that, that grace and salvation can come to someone like that. Well, Jesus hasn't finished pulling down the walls of their spiritual pride. He, he moves straight into case number two. Elisha and Naaman from, from 2 Kings 5. And again, a story of God's prophet taking uh, uh, the blessing of God to someone outside of God's people. And on this occasion, one of Israel's fiercest enemies. 
Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, an army that had been successfully just raiding Israel and uh, its borders and killing uh, its people, enslaving its people amongst all the other atrocities of war. Naaman is a very powerful man, a man of stature, a man of wealth. So Jesus is clarifying that there's no exclusivity to receiving the gospel to the, you know, just in being materially poor. It's for the rich as well. Nevertheless, for all his power and all his wealth, Naaman's leprosy made him extremely needy. You know, sometimes, uh, no matter how much we accumulate, we still find ourselves in want. We still find ourselves in need. We still find that things can be taken from us. This pandemic has certainly done that to us. Uh, In an astonishing uh, moment of providential grace, uh, a servant girl who Naaman would have taken uh, in battle after killing her parents or selling them into slavery, uh, you know, a real Joseph moment, you know, the things that you uh, thought, you know, the things that you did that were evil, God works for good. Now this girl that Naaman took as captive is going to be the messenger of grace for him. She says to this self-made uh, man's wife, um, you know, back in Samaria, we have a prophet that could heal my Lord. So Naaman hears this and he goes and he runs and he grabs a letter from the king of Syria and he loads his, his, his chariots and all that up with impressive gifts of, and extraordinary wealth and he's going to go up there, he's going to purchase his healing. Um, it's going to be the kind of offer that no one can refuse. Only when he gets to the king of Israel, the king of Israel thinks that it's a ploy, that he's just trying to pick a fight uh, with him. Um, because what mortal man can cure leprosy? Have a look around. We've got plenty of lepers here. Providentially, again, uh, Elisha, the man of God, hears about it and says, it's no biggie. Just send old Mr. Impressive uh, down here before he you know, falls apart and loses too many limbs and I'll sort him all out. So Naaman heads down to Elisha with all his horses and chariots, all his power and all his wealth. And he expects that Elisha would just come running out and just want to grab a selfie with him and post it on all his socials to say, hey, look at the kind of clientele I deal with. Aren't I impressive? But Elisha doesn't do that. In fact, Elisha sends out the first year uni student who's there on a placement and sends him out with a message to go and watch in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will become clean. Big man. And this just affronts Naaman. Because again, he is being told that his salvation does not lie in his impressive contribution. And nor will Elijah be manipulated into the demands and pressure uh, that he meet Naaman on his terms. And Naaman just loses his mind, we read there in Second Kings 5.11, and says, I thought that, that he would surely come out to me and stand up and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abner and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Surely that would be more appropriate uh, for someone of my stature. And he storms off and the big man's chucking a little boy's tantrum. But his servant, and again, a person of of low standing, comes and says, probably very respectfully, very cautiously, uh, no doubt, Saint Naaman, if Elijah had asked you to do something great that you could take credit for, 
uh, that you could take pride in, that you could add to your story of conquering, you would have done it. If you could add this to you, you would have done it. But maybe this humbling thing, have you ever considered that maybe you just need to see your need? You need to acknowledge that you have reached the end of your own resources, your own self-sufficiency. Just go wash in that manky old Jordan seven times. And Naaman does it. He humbles himself in order to be restored, in order to be delivered from death. Often this is the case, isn't it? We want, we, you know, if, if, if we want Jesus to change our life, or if Jesus expects us to change our life, to come to him, we want it to be impressive. We want it to be done on our terms. And Jesus is saying, my salvation comes uh, to those who have the wisdom of heart to humble themselves. You know, on the little epistle that James writes in toward the end of the New Testament, it says that God gives grace to the humble. God gives them the capacity to receive his salvation, but the proud he opposes. The gospel is for the rich and the wealthy, but they will need the same approach of heart, an approach of heart that says, I'm needy. You need to see your need of grace. You can't save yourself through any of your good works. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus is saying to them, if a Gentile can see the wisdom of humility, this proud man, surely you can too. Well, it was about more than they could take. And right then and there, that's when this church service was abandoned. There's going to be no end to the sermon. There's going to be uh, no threefold, um, you know, ironic blessing. That's the blessing uh, that we've been seeing on, on Facebook and YouTube so much lately. It comes from number six, you know, the Lord. And normally their church service, they would do the blessing, uh, you know, the, the synagogue attendant or whoever may say, the Lord bless you and keep you. And the congregation would say, amen, you know, so let it be. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the crowd will respond, so, amen, you know. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And amen, and there's no peace and there's no blessing here. Just pride-fueled rejection of Jesus' sermon. Full of wrath that his claims are taking out to be stoned, which is represented by them taking him to the brow of a hill where he's going to push him off the hill and, and into a little pit and just kind of stone him to death. Because, you know, Deuteronomy 13 says that's what you do to false prophets. And if it wasn't for the fact that it appears that Jesus was under divine protection, he just walks away, they would have pounded him into the ground. I also wonder, as they dragged him, uh, marched him up to the place of execution, they had to think to themselves, who's going to cast the first stone? Someone has to do that. Who will bring a charge against Jesus beyond just being offended at his words? And as they search for some action to accuse him with, they realize that in all the time Jesus has been with them, he has never defrauded anyone. He has never lied. He's never cheated. He's never stolen. He's kept all the commandments. He's honored God and he's honored his mother and father. And while in their wildest imaginations they could not have expected him to be God, to be salvation in the flesh, they could not dispute that there was no sin that could be found in him. And so 
Jesus walks because they couldn't simply see past their own noses to see what was right in front of them. You know the point in all of this that Luke wants us to grab is that as good as a news as the gospel is, the the only way that it is heard, the only way that it is received is by a heart that is prepared to receive it, by one that is prepared to see its need of it, one prepared to undergo uh, the work of grace and and the radical change of of what a grace-driven life looks like. These are the people who receive Jesus' offer of salvation. These will be the people throughout Luke's gospel who receive his offer of salvation, not the self-sufficient, not those who find comfort in their riches. Luke is saying that those outside will be brought in, and those who think they're on the inside may just find themselves on the outside. The gospel brings about great reversal of condition. It will not leave you just merely a more happy version of what you are. It will replace what you are enslaved to with a relationship with God uh, in, in Christ as your primary source of meaning, as your primary source of satisfaction and joy, which is good news because God is an endless source of joy, an endless source of meaning. You can place your fiercest worship on him and it will not uh, be crushing toward him. Not like your job, not like your marriage, not like your sexuality, not like your religious piety. You know, just as there were many uh, of God's people in need in the time of Elijah and Elisha, only the widow and only Naaman got to experience salvation from their afflictions. Outsiders brought in because they saw their need. They knew there was no hope outside of God's provision. The widow knew she would starve to death. Naaman knew he couldn't cure himself and needed external saving grace. And they they are willing and humble receivers of it. Jesus is saying, I am that provision. I am God's offer of grace to those who see their need of me. Not just in the moment either. But ongoing, it's not an event. Jesus comes to be provision for your life's journey. My salvation, the salvation that Jesus brings, is, is, is daily, day-to-day provision for need. Have you come to the end of yourself? Or are you still depending on something within yourself? Some, something unnamed, something unspoken. But it's the bit of your self-salvation where you say, this is me. I am. I am. I am just this job, this assets, this my sexuality, religion, constructions of my own hands. I'm hanging on to that. This is the very pride that Jesus came to assault with grace. You know, apart from Jesus, I don't really see God's grace. Apart from Jesus, I don't really uh, know his riches. Apart from Jesus, I am oppressed to sin uh, and to the things that I hate. Apart from Jesus, I am in prison to sinful, addictive behaviors and desires that just own me and tear me to pieces. Have you worked through the offensive nature of the gospel that exposes your need to see that it's grace that meets you there? Let's pray. Lord, we 
thank you for this uh, message from Jesus himself. This is a sermon preached from Jesus about where, how one finds salvation, about the condition of the heart that finds uh, salvation in him. Uh, Lord, we know uh, that Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. He asks the heart to humble itself before him. And we know that Jesus humbled himself to the point of, of, of the cross, of dying for our sins. That was the level of humility that this God would go to to bring us back into our salvation with him. And we pray uh, that this morning, that uh, if we haven't been there, haven't encountered it, that we would run toward it and that we have, that we would wake up to it every morning and renew our hearts in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.